Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I know my Aladars from my Aldos, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week, I'm an injured iguanodon desperately limping in the general direction of the nesting grounds, minutes away from being taken down by a carnotaur. Thankfully, I'm being led by a prehistoric powerhouse who knows the path through the plains like the back of his... Dinosaur feet? Dinosaur hands? What what do dinosaurs even have? I'm a little rusty at this. We've been off for a couple of weeks. But I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, we are back. How are you doing? We are. And I'm not a paleontologist, and I am not a reptile doctor of any kind either. <laughs> reptile vet, so I don't know what dinosaurs feet are. I guess claws. Yeah, like right? pads. They have, they're, they're all feet. They have four <laughs> feet. I mean, out of the two of us, I'm the dino boy, but I don't know this side of dinosaurs. You know, I'm not an anatomical dino guy. Well, I'm even interested in how many of the dinosaurs... There's dinosaurs in this movie that I would not be able to name if I hadn't looked it up. So I wonder how well you do. Because you're a big Jurassic guy, you're a big dino guy, and yeah, I mean, that's just one of the many reasons why I'm very intrigued in what you think of the movie Dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, I, I love dinosaur movies. Jurassic Park is my favourite film. And I'm going to say most of the dinosaurs in this, I recognised <laughs> what they were supposed to be. Even the ones where they look different visually than they do in Jurassic Park, because... Of everything, Jurassic Park is the absolute best, but it does take a lot of license, a lot of liberty with the dinosaur designs. But I know who these guys are. Well, so does Dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're all just making it up as they go along, basically. But yeah, it's nice. We're, we're back. Regular class has resumed after our time living it up at the BFI. That was a good time, wasn't it? Yeah, we did a couple of talks, as if you listened to our last little special episode, you'll have heard one of them, and we did some more last week. We introduced Pinocchio, we were part of a Disney day for young audiences as well. We also entered and won the quote-unquote fiendishly difficult Disney quiz that the BFI put on. You say quote-unquote, it was fiendishly difficult. Oh, no, yeah, sorry, it, it was incredibly hard. <laughs> like I, We had you on our side, and that just feels like almost cheating to an extent, but the, the team who came in second were very close behind us. It was a really close-run thing. It was an incredible quiz that I, I think I knew like a quarter of the answers, if that. Sam, you were the, you were the brain box behind the operation, as per usual. Yeah, but it still came really close. I got quite stressed. I'm not totally proud of all of my behaviour <laughs> towards the end of that quiz. But 
I have a reputation to maintain. No one else in the room knew that, but for you and I, I have a reputation to maintain. There might have been some listeners in there, who knows? And I have never lost a Disney or an animation-themed quiz. I've entered several, and I've never lost, and... I'm glad to be able to keep that streak up, but it was a close-run thing. Watching you recognise a clip from the live-action Disney film The Gnome-Mobile in real time as it played out in the room was an extraordinary thing, an incredible moment. Yeah, we've had a great time at the BFI during their Making Magic 100 Years of Disney season. As Sam said, you can listen to our talk from NFT1. That is up now on the podcast feed. We're not going to put up our talk for the young audiences. That was like a separate thing. Doesn't really work for the podcast format. We didn't record it. So that one was just for you guys in the room. If you were there, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear us live, there is still time to get tickets for our show at the London Podcast Festival. Yes, we are still plugging this Saturday, the 9th of September at 11.30am, King's Place, London, We will be there doing our live show on Shrek. It's going to be like the Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode that is on the feed now. Go back and listen to that. We had tons of fun last year. An incredible time. A lovely audience. And we're doing exactly the same thing. This time, talking about Sam's specialist subject. I imagine if he ever goes on Mastermind, Shrek is his topic. And yeah, I can't wait for that episode. It's just a couple of weeks away now. Very exciting for us, very exciting for you, obviously, the listener. Uh, There might be prizes, Uh, we've talked about that, there might be some kind of like contest with some kind of prizes, but we haven't ironed out the details yet. And you can get a ticket for £9.50, it is super cheap, come and see us, we would love to see you in the audience. According to the King's Place website, they're down to the last few tickets. So if you are intent on being there and haven't picked up yours yet, this is your sign. Go and get it now, kingsplace.co.uk, and we will see you on the 9th of September with prizes. They're not big prizes, don't get any hopes up, (laughs) but it's going to be a really fun time. And from there, we're heading into a new era. The wilderness years, Sam, are stretching ahead of us like a long and winding road after the Renaissance. This is the beginning of a whole new era for the studio. And what a film to start it with as well. It's so appropriate because not only is this a film that, at least for Disney, or by anyone's standards really in 2000, but certainly for Disney, is extremely strange, experimental in a way, and for a large part of it takes place in the wilderness. It's very fitting. It's, you know, filmically fitting, which is really hard to say, as well as just being the next chapter in the Disney story. And we're going on our own little trip, not into the wilderness per se. Maybe by the time you're listening to this, we have already been and come back, but we are finally doing a trip, an official, unofficial, semi-official Disneyversity trip to Disneyland Paris. <laughs> a week tomorrow as we record this, we are flying to Paris with our respective partners, <laughs> and we're going to spend three days at Disneyland Paris mostly living it up, having a great time, eating in the Ratatouille restaurant, eating at the Ant-Man restaurant. We've got our bookings in place for those. And if all goes to plan, we're hoping to record a little bit of stuff out there too. So we don't exactly know when these will come out. We don't exactly know whenabouts in the order of the show these will be with you. But the plan is to record some episodes about Disneyland as a whole, including stuff we record at Disneyland Paris, talking about the history of the Disney theme parks. 
and hopefully getting a bit of the ambience of us <laughs> milling around. I really hope the weather's good. I am so excited about Hyperspace Mountain. Uh, I can't wait. Yeah, you say that now, but you're going to Disneyland with me. Like, this is going to be brutal. <laughs> you are going to be put through your paces. Like, Lid and Lizzie, our partners, they're going to be going home for naps. <laughs> they're going to be going off with each other to just get a drink or something. I'm taking you on everything. Yeah. I know you've been to some of the parks before, but now you're doing it with me. We're doing everything, Ben. I am so excited to go on all the old school Disney rides, all the new school Disney rides as well. Maybe see some shows. There's a new Pixar show. Who knows what we're going to get up to? We don't now, but you will in time because we're going to do some Disneyland episodes. But anyway, that is over a week away. And for now, Sam, we have some dinosaurs to talk about. So that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, we're in for a blast from the past, throwing it back to 2000's Dinosaur. Right then, Sam. We, we have plenty to discuss on Dinosaur before we even get into the film itself, but this is one that I imagine these days a lot of people haven't seen. So for the people who haven't seen Dinosaur, which might be quite a lot of you, what is the plot of this movie? This movie is about Aladar, who is a young iguanodon raised by lemurs. This already sounds mad. <laughs> He's the Tarzan of, of iguanodons. He's raised by lemurs in a tropical paradise until a meteor shower destroys their home. He and his family join a herd of dinosaurs led by the merciless Kron, 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 they pronounce it several different ways in the film, who promises to take them to safety but has no regard for the weak and frail of the pack. So Aladar must save the whole herd by changing its culture and lead them all to the fabled nesting grounds. So there you have it. It is a prehistoric journey from one home to another. Loads of dinosaurs, a surprising amount of lemurs. We will get to that. And this is officially, I mean, we're covering it on this show. This is a Walt Disney Animation Studios canon movie. The 39th, I believe, Walt Disney Animation Studios film. Or is it? Big old question mark. What is going on, Sam? We're heading into rocky territory with the numbering system. This is where it starts to get really messy. What is going on? Why does it begin with Dinosaur? So, we've already had some tweets from people saying, I have the allegedly complete Disney animated features box set, and it doesn't have dinosaur in it. Instead, it's got a movie I've never heard of called The Wild. <laughs> a movie that you and I have heard of, to be clear. But there is an anomaly around The Wild. Because when this film starts, it says Walt Disney Pictures. It doesn't kind of announce itself as an animated movie. So, was it considered one at the time? Was it retroactively given a number? What, how does this count as a Walt Disney Animation Studios film? Because actually a significant portion of what you see on the screen is live action. This has more live action stuff in it than the 2019 Lion King film, which is considered live action-ish, but is entirely computer generated. This is not entirely computer generated. Loads of the backgrounds are live action footage. So how is this considered one of their animated films? Was it always considered that way? How, how does it fit into the numbering system? 
So I've known about this discrepancy for a long time, but I've never delved into the reasoning behind it before we started this podcast. Because we were talking right when we started, like, are we going to do Dinosaur or are we going to do The Wild? And I knew that Dinosaur is the right answer, but I had to figure out why. I had to answer this question. And every few months I'll do a little bit of digging, but now because we're doing the Dinosaur episode, I could not let it lie. I had to get to the bottom of this. Because I never really even knew for a fact whether Dinosaur had a number when it first came out, whether it was considered a Disney animated film then. Because in America, to be clear, it is. In America, it's, it's in the numbered list. It's in the UK, in Europe, in other territories where it's replaced with the wild. So it wasn't initially included in the numbered list anywhere when it first came out, presumably because it was CGI at a time when Disney Animation exclusively made 2D films. And also because, as we'll get into and we'll talk about its production, it was made by a slightly different branch of the studio, by an offshoot of Disney Animation Studios called The Secret Lab. Wait, it was literally called The Secret Lab where they were making dinosaurs (laughs) come back to life. (laughs) Yeah, very, very Jurassic Park. We'll get onto that. So this meant that when it was originally released, The Emperor's New Groove, our next film was considered number 39. But shortly after that, Disney put up a statement on their website, this is in 2002, proclaiming that then scrapping the numbering system altogether. Oh. Yeah, because of what they'd been doing with Pixar, because of all the sequels that were coming out and things like the Tigger movie made by other branches of the studio, they were just scrapping the whole numbering system. But they brought it back towards the back end of the 2000s, especially putting a lot of emphasis on it in the lead up to Tangled, which was heavily marketed as the 50th Walt Disney Animation Studios film. The earliest list that I've been able to find that includes Dinosaur as number 39 is from 2008. But in the UK and some other territories, as we've said, The Wild has been included in lieu of Dinosaur. It came out a few years later, so The Wild is number 46. Emperor's New Groove is still 39, but The Wild is 46, and everything gets bumped up from there. The Wild is emphatically not a Disney Animation Studios film. It was produced and distributed by Disney, but it was animated entirely at an independent Canadian studio called Core. And that means that it's effectively as much of a Disney animation film as Toy Story is, right? So why is it in there? I had to get to the bottom of this. And there are two theories that I could find online behind why Dinosaur was included retroactively. One, because once they pivoted to focusing on CGI films with Chicken Little, Dinosaur suddenly feels like it fits with the canon, whereas it hadn't before. And two, they wanted to position Tangled as number 50 so that they could give it a big marketing push. If they didn't retroactively add a film, the number 50 would be Winnie the Pooh or Wreck-It Ralph, you know, which neither of those really feel like they fit the bill of paying tribute to Disney's legacy in the way that Tangled did. But neither of these explain why The Wild is included instead of Dinosaur in the UK, even if either of those are true. So, yeah, this box set that people are talking about that came out in 2019, that has The Wild in, it doesn't have Dinosaur in. Any DVD that's ever been released with a number on the spine in the UK doesn't give it a Dinosaur and it does give it to The Wild. So this is a mystery that I had to solve and I thought, well, I'll start with figuring out when they were first included, right? When were these first given numbers? So that's why I put a shout out on Twitter asking people to send me pictures of any old DVD copies that they had of Dinosaur, The Wild, and the surrounding movies. 
So a bunch of extremely helpful people sent me pictures of their Blu-rays and DVDs and everything of like the wild dinosaur and things like Chicken Little and Meet the Robinsons so that I could try and piece together like when did this happen? When did these DVDs come out? Did they have numbers? What were the numbers? Did they account for the wilder dinosaur being in there? And friend of the show, John Hornbuckle, eventually slid it in my DMs with a smoking gun, right? Oh, John Hornbuckle comes through with the key piece of information. <laughs> the classic John. We love you, John. So he has an original copy, for some reason, of The Wild from 2006 on DVD. Of course he which does. Which says... On the box, this is Disney's 46th animated classic. So The Wild, from its original release in the UK, was always number 46. There's no way this was done to position Tangled as number 50 because that film was still in early development. You, no one would be planning that far ahead with this marketing campaign. And I looked it up online and I was able to corroborate this. I found a review of The Wild from 2006 that mentions the numbering. But I can't find anything earlier than 2008 for Dinosaur. So... Based on the available evidence, this is my <laughs> Columbo moment, based on the available evidence, here is what I think happened. In 2006, someone at Disney's team in the UK decides to label The Wild as the number 46 Disney animated classic to help boost sales for what was a disappointing release, right? This movie did not do well in cinemas, let's try and boost its home video sales by putting a number on it and making it look like it's part of this lineage, part of this collection, so people like me, you have to have them all, will buy it because it's got that number on the spine. And to be clear, you have it, right? You you own The Wild. I have the Blu-ray of The Wild, right. which doesn't have the numbering on, and this is also why people's messages on Twitter were really helpful because they sent me Blu-rays of Meet the Robinsons and Chicken Little that didn't have the numbering on. Right. So that told me it isn't just the wild, it's just that the Blu-rays didn't have the numbers and that was how they did it, but the DVDs did. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, so... in front of a big board covered in red string. <laughs> He's gone down the we, rabbit hole. We are getting there, okay. we are getting there. So that's why I think they put the number on the wild when it was first released, to, to boost sales, right? A couple of years later, in 2008, the US team realised, oh, maybe we should add Dinosaur in, maybe to help boost it to get Tangled to number 50. That could have been the reason. Either way, that happened around 2008. And the UK team never get round to implementing this change because Tangled is already going to be number 50 here, so we don't have to do that. We already have 50. So that never became an imperative for the, for the UK team. So that numbering just stands to this day. That's my answer. That's my theory. So, in summary, to sum up what the last 10 minutes of the podcast, <laughs> in the US, Dinosaur for quite a long time has been considered an animated classic, if not when it was initially released. But in the Correct. run up to Tangled, it was officially implemented as a numbered animated classic. In the UK, it's never been declared a Walt Disney Animation Studios canonical movie. And for some reason, The Wild was. And to be clear, when we get to The Wild, we are going to do an episode on The Wild. A short episode. It's going to be a mini episode. Like, a bonus episode, effectively. Because we're not counting it in the numbering. No matter what the UK DVDs say. We will touch on it. But the film we have chosen to cover, we have come down on the side of the Americans. Well done, America. This is a victory for you. Dinosaur counts. The Wild doesn't but we will do something on it anyway. I'm really glad for your sake, for mine, for everybody's. Thank you everybody who sent in 
pictures and evidence to Sam, who clearly was spiralling <laughs> through all of this in the last few weeks. But you, I'm, I'm so thrilled you got to the bottom of it. But also, if anybody has an actual explanation, this is all hypothesis. If anyone knows for a fact that I'm wrong, let me know, because we do have some listeners on the inside who've occasionally corroborated things that I've supposed. So if you know any better, get in touch. Okay, well, that is a lot of background information, but we still have a few things to get through before we discuss the film itself. So, as I mentioned before, this is a fascinating film for us to be covering. Uh, Not in terms of the film itself, which isn't massively interesting, but (laughs) in terms of what it is, like I said, a lot of this is live-action footage with CGI 3D dinosaurs composited on top of that. And I'm fascinated to know, what did the animators at Disney make of this at the time? This is the studio's first real big foray into 3D. If you listen to our Fantasia 2000 episode, you'll know that one of those shorts in Fantasia 2000 was entirely 3D CGI. But this is another kind of step for the studio away, not entirely yet, because we have a lot of 2D movies left, but... A bigger step away from the traditional hand-drawn 2D animated Disney movie. So what did the insiders make of this at the time? Were were some of the old animators panicking? No, I don't think so. Because again, this was never positioned as this is going to take over from Disney's 2D animation at this point. This was an offshoot. I don't think people felt threatened. It's a very different kind of movie made in a very different kind of way. Hence, maybe it wasn't going to be included in the canon and all of that. But... It is a Disney Animation Studios production in the sense that the Secret Lab, the company that actually animated it, or the the division of Disney that actually animated it, was made up in part of people who'd been working on the 3D effects on previous Disney animated films. So the guys who were doing The Wildebeests, for example, the guys who were doing Deep Canvas in Tarzan, they were working on this movie and some of the people writing it, um, some of the people originally developing the story, etc., were also from the traditional pool of, of animators and story artists at Walt Disney Animation Studios. But this movie came from a very different place in, in terms of its original roots, and I was really surprised when I started looking into it where the idea for this movie came from. Yeah, so when did it first come up to make this film, which I think we're going to discuss, on the one hand, feels like it's trying to exist in the lineage of Bambi and the Lion King, and yet, obviously, it has a very different presentation to it. Where does it begin that Disney is going to try and tell a dinosaur story in this way? The actual idea was originally pitched in, like, the mid-1980s. Wow. It, It goes back a long time, And if you think that's a wow, the original pitch came from Phil Tippett. Do you know Phil Tippett, Ben? I love Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett, the dinosaur supervisor on Jurassic Park, famously. He is a massive stop-motion puppetry guy. He did loads of incredible legendary effects on the original Star Wars trilogy. He puppeteered the Rancor. He came up with all kinds of mad stuff for the original Star Wars films and wanted to animate the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park, particularly the velociraptors, in stop motion. He created incredible stop motion footage of the raptors, which then eventually ended up being used as reference footage for the CGI artists, which he was not happy about. And I actually haven't seen this yet, but last year he released a film called Mad God, 
which oh yeah i know you love sam and that is a big wild horror skewing stop motion animated opus that he has been working on for years and years and years just beavering away at this thing i really need to get around to watching it i have seen <laughs> the episode of poker face that is basically about Phil Tippett with Nick Nolte playing a Phil Tippett alike uh, caught up in a murder mystery. But I've not seen Mad God yet. But yes, big Phil Tippett guy. I've, I've spoken to him before. He is a legend. Well, if you ever speak to him again, <laughs> you've got to ask him about Dinosaur because okay. honestly, bear all of that in mind as we tell this story because every single thing you've said there is, is extremely relevant. Right. But this was long before Jurassic Park. He came up with the idea for Dinosaur. Well, he made a short film in the early 80s that was just two dinosaurs fighting. If anything, it was quite similar to Fantasia, to the the Rite of Spring sequence in Fantasia with the Stegosaurus fighting the T-Rex. But this was all in stop motion, very dark and violent, and the dinosaurs don't speak or anything like that. And shortly after he made that film, he went to work on a movie called Robocop. Yeah. Yes, the robotic cop of Paul Verhoeven yeah. fame. Right, okay. Paul Verhoeven, we're all very familiar with. Do you want to explain who Paul Verhoeven is to the listeners? Yeah, Paul Verhoeven is a Dutch satirist, primarily. If you've seen Robocop, Robocop is a satire. He also made Starship Troopers. He makes big, splashy, gory, unsubtle, wildly entertaining, very pointed movies like those he also made showgirls uh he made benedetta recently which is absolutely bonkers uh, like a non-sploitation movie uh yeah paul verhoven incredible filmography wild guy how, how is he involved in this paul verhoven was the original director of the movie dinosaur Okay? <laughs> when? In the 1980s. Okay, so, and, uh, so this was going to be a Phil Tippett, Paul Verhoeven team-up? Absolutely. Oh my Phil God. Tippett is on the set of Robocop. He's making Ed 209 and all of that. They're shooting the scene where Ed 209 falls down the stairs, I believe. And Tippett says to Verhoeven, in between shoots, I've got this idea for a dinosaur movie, by the way. You see what I can do with robots in this? Imagine a dinosaur movie made by me in collaboration with you, and it's just dinosaurs murdering each other, (laughs) making love to each other. That was the pitch. Okay, Phil. (laughs) There was going to be defecation, there was going to be copulation, and there was going to be violent murder. Wow. And they came together, said, we're going to make this movie, and they went and pitched it to Disney. (laughs) They went and pitched it to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who says, yeah, go on, yeah, we'll do this. We'll (laughs) make Look, it was the dark age. Anything went back then. They they were making the Black Cauldron at the time. So it was going to be a silent, violent, explicit, stop-motion dinosaur movie made by Phil Tippett and Paul Verhoeven. Yes. And eventually it became clear that Disney was <laughs> never going to let them get away with any of this. So they left the project and Tippett went directly to work on Jurassic Park. Right. Because he just had to get these dinosaurs out there. And still, it didn't get to do any stop-motion dinosaurs. Didn't manage to make any of them poop on screen. There is a big pile of dinosaur shit in Jurassic Park. But it has already been shat. Uh, We don't see that happen. So I imagine Phil Tippett was disappointed two times over. Pull one out for Phil. So, the dinosaur project falls a bit by the wayside. Until 
the late 90s when Michael Eisner is developing Disney's new theme park, Animal Kingdom, right? Which you recently went to on your honeymoon, is that right? Yeah, as part of our honeymoon, Lizzie and I went to Walt Disney World and have been to Animal Kingdom. I'm sure we'll come to it a bit more later in the show. But that was, so that was pivotal in them deciding to finally make Dinosaur? Yeah, so we'll talk about it properly in Last and Legacy, just because that's where we're talking about these kind of things. But actually, the movie Dinosaur is kind of the Last and Legacy of Animal Kingdom. Because as part of the theme park, they were going to build a land themed around dinosaurs. And Eisner decided they would resurrect the dinosaur movie to tie into it. And the, the main ride in that land of the park, which was originally called Countdown to Extinction, but has since just been renamed Dinosaur, was developed in tandem with this and opened a couple of years before the movie did. Right, so this is, in its own way, a theme park spawning a movie that had long fallen by the wayside. So uh, when does it come about that they're going to make it in this way with 3D dinosaurs? And who are the directors coming into this? Ralph Zondag and Eric Layton. Are they people who have been around in the studio for a while? No, not really. Neither of them. Well, Ralph Zondag, he co-wrote Pocahontas, so he'd worked for Disney. But more importantly, he had a lot of dino experience. He was an animator on the land before time. And he directed a movie called We're Back, colon, A Dinosaur Story. Is that a movie that you're familiar with, Ben? No, I need to add this to my dinosaur canon. (laughs) So it's a movie about, I think it's John Goodman is the lead dinosaur. It's about like a bunch of dinosaurs, all your favourites. There's a T-Rex, there's a Triceratops, Stegosaurus. Come to modern day New York through time travel shenanigans. And it's mainly memorable because it has a villain called Screw Eyes, who is one of the most horrifying animated villains. He's a man with screw eyes and he runs some kind of evil circus. If you ever want a fright, just go on YouTube and type in (laughs) screw eyes death because it's one of the gnarliest, spookiest deaths in any animated movie for a villain. Maybe also type way back a dinosaur story in that search (laughs) so that you don't get some other horrible stuff on the internet. Just saying. Correct, okay. So, that's Ralph Zondag. Eric Layton was a stop-motion animator who had worked with Tippett on several projects, and I I think was attached to this when it was going to be stop-motion. But of course, when it was resurrected by Eisner, that was no longer the plan. So, Dinosaur was being developed by Disney's feature animation division, but it was decided that its animation should be entirely 3D. We want this realistic, three-dimensional effect that we would get with the intricate stop-motion of Phil Tippett. But now, Pixar are out there. Yeah, DreamWorks is starting up. We need our in-house 3D animation division because Disney doesn't own Pixar yet. They need to be able to do their own thing because they don't know how long Pixar are going to stick in their deal for. They could turn around in a couple of years and suddenly Pixar's a competitor. We need something to compete. So they started a new division called The Secret Lab. And The Secret Lab began as an independent effects company called DreamQuest who were founded in the 80s, worked on the likes of Blade Runner, won Oscars for The Abyss, Total Recall, good pedigree. Disney acquired them in 1996, and they basically just used them to make effects. So Dream Quest are making the effects for Armageddon, The Sixth Sense, again, good pedigree. In 1999, they merged Dream Quest with Disney Feature Animation's computer graphics unit, so the guys responsible for the 3D effects in the 2D movies, rebranded it as The Secret Lab, and fitted out 
a huge building with all the kit that they would need to not just make effects for live action films but fully CGI movies to compete with Pixar if that deal should ever expire. And this cost a bomb. So when we talk about the gross for Dinosaur versus its budget later on, bear in mind that they also built a whole new unit, a whole new warehouse, which was never used again after this movie. Oh, okay? wow. Yeah, we'll come back to that. So they bet all of this on the success of Dinosaur. This is going to be the movie that transitions us eventually, and not exclusively, as will end up happening. It's going to transition us into 3D films, and we're going to do something super cool, never been done before, CGI dinosaurs against live-action backgrounds. Unfortunately, the BBC beat them to it by a year with Walking With Dinosaurs, right? (laughs) So it, it gets even weirder. All this time... I'm so, this is the longest preamble we've ever had before a movie, but I think this is the episode that merits it. For all this time, the idea is the dinosaurs do not talk. Going way back to Phil Tippett's idea, the dinosaurs are silent, it's realistic. It's like a documentary, okay? There was an idea that there could be a narrator, and there was an idea that the dinosaurs could have like inner monologues, but we don't actually see the lips move or anything. And Eisner just kind of pushed past each and every one of these interim stages until we get to the point where the dinosaurs just speak with voices for better and indeed for worse. And funnily enough, the exact same thing would happen with the 2013 Walking With Dinosaurs movie. They made a movie based on Walking With Dinosaurs in 2013, which no one has seen. I haven't even seen that. No, as a Walking With Dinosaurs kid, I should have been in the tank for that movie and... I've never seen it, and I don't know if I ever will. Talking dinosaurs in the Walking with Dinosaurs. It's walking with dinosaurs, not talking with dinosaurs, <laughs> damn it. It's the same deal, it was going to be silent, and then they decided we'll have to put voices on to sell this. And then I think another issue, a bit of context for this that is worth considering as well, is that Emperor's New Groove, which we'll talk about in the next episode, and what is probably going to be another quite long preamble, faced massive delays. So Dinosaur was brought forward to fill that gap. So the back end of the production of this film was rushed. And maybe that's visible on screen. (laughs) Well, shall we get into it? Shall we... Please, (laughs) let's crack this egg. Yeah, let's crack the egg wide open. As you say then, we have seen dinosaurs in Disney movies before going way back to Fantasia. But we've never seen dinosaurs like this, and it feels like in the opening minutes of Dinosaur, Disney really wants to make a point of that. We are getting a close-up on dinosaur skin, we are seeing a semi-realistic egg, and we get this sequence where the egg containing the Iguanodon, who we'll go on to know as Aladar, is basically being, like, tossed around (laughs) prehistoric Earth. He's knocked in a river, he's picked up by a pteranodon, he's flown around everywhere. We get this journey from Aladar's nest into the world of the extremely freaky lemurs who will raise him as one of their own. And it's just trying to immerse you in this world where, as we've said, there are live-action environments featuring CGI dinosaurs. I can't help but feel that maybe at the time it looked quite impressive. 23 years on, it does not look that impressive <laughs> anymore. That is the elephant or the uh, the iguanodon in the room, is that this film, by modern standards, doesn't look great. 
And I think I already know this, but you haven't seen this before, right? No, I'd never seen it, which is funny. I mean, I was nine when this came out, and I should have been in the tank for it. Probably at the time I was still traumatised from watching Jurassic Park, which completely enthralled me and absolutely terrified me as a kid. I never saw this when it came out, and I haven't visited it since. So all of this was, yeah, brand new to me. But did you ever see this trailer? Because exactly like The Lion King... The opening sequence of this movie was the trailer. So we talked about in the Lion King episode, the teaser for that film was just the Circle of Life sequence. And here they thought would do the same thing. And it has quite a few things in common with the Circle of Life. Obviously, Lebo M is involved in the soundtrack, and that's very evident. The soundtrack is, is Lion King-esque. But we also have our introduction to this wild world with an introduction to lots of the different species that inhabit the world. And it's all leading up to, in a way, the birth of our hero, the presentation of our young hero. And they did what they did with The Lion King. They put this sequence, like four minutes long, long for a trailer, in front of a bunch of movies, in front of a bunch of videos, DVDs. I was extremely hyped for this film because I'd seen this multiple times and I was blown away by it when I was a kid. Do you remember what videos it was on? Because as I said, really, Pocahontas was our last one. And we had a lot of Pixar videos, but I don't think those had a trailer for Dinosaur. I don't really remember anything about this film from when I was a kid. That's interesting. I don't know for a fact, but maybe you would think Toy Story 2 it would be on. Maybe A Bug's Life, but probably not that far back. If there's a Pixar movie, it would be Toy Story 2. But yeah, it was in the cinema, and it just blew me away. I didn't even really, it didn't register to me that it was a movie because it didn't have any of the rhythms of a movie trailer. It was almost like just this cool short that they were shown before the film. And maybe, maybe it would have worked better if they'd left it like that because this movie takes you on a journey in its opening <laughs> five to ten minutes. Like, obviously, we're going on this incredible journey following this tracking shot, following especially this pterodon, pterodactyl flying fella carrying the egg around, and we see the egg's journey past all of these different dinosaurs, and then the movie takes you on a journey where you slowly realise, if you didn't know already, oh, this is gonna have talking, this is gonna have characters this is gonna have little little lemurs and maybe it's not gonna live up to even if we disregard the fact that maybe the cgi is aged poorly maybe it's not gonna live up to the promise of that opening sequence yeah i mean to get this out of the way i do think the opening sequence is probably the best part of the film because i don't know there is a certain majesty to those big old swooping shots with the James Newton Howard and Lebo M score kicking in. I can't help but be swept up by beautifully scored shots of epic landscapes with dinosaurs roaming on them. That is just in my DNA. I can't not feel a little bit of a tingle from that. There are lots of great dinosaurs in that sequence as well. We get a little foreshadowing of a Carnotaurus. There's a Cynoceratops in there. I was loving live Sam, picking out all the different dinos in this sequence and really enjoying there's just like a straight up lizard with wings, <laughs> which was cool. He looks like a normal lizard. He's just got wings. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how accurate that is. It's like one of my favourite creatures in Avatar <laughs> is where James Cameron's just thinking of all these like different, like slightly different versions of Earth animals and what they'd look like on Pandora. And one of them is a lizard with like a spiral on its back and it just flies through the air like a helicopter going. Mm. 
lizards with wings into it i like it here for it but in general <laughs> i think we need to get it out of the way right yeah i do not like this movie and I would not say that about any of the movies that we have watched for this podcast so far. Even some of the package features, even The Sword and the Stone. I've said on a few earlier episodes, as far as I know, having not revisited a lot of them, especially from this era, maybe there's some I like less, maybe there's some I like more on this watch through. I think there are only two genuinely terrible Disney movies that I just would not recommend. And one of them is Dinosaur. How do you feel? Ooh, you're getting the terrible out for Dinosaur. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, it is not good. I was thinking this might be the worst film we've watched for the podcast, which makes me a bit sad to say about a dinosaur film, but that's because it's not a great dinosaur film. And there are flashes of promise in that opening. But I think there's a couple of things going on, right? On the one hand, what this film could have been and maybe what it was initially going for in that sequence before everyone starts talking and the lemurs are everywhere. As interesting as that is, coming to it with modern eyes, as you said, it came out around the same time as Walking with Dinosaurs. These days, the ultimate version of that, like the version of dinosaur you have in your head, if you liked that opening sequence as a kid, prehistoric planets on Apple TV is the version of that that is great and that has incredible, genuinely mind-blowing CGI in it that so much of it looks so photoreal and they go out and basically shoot a nature documentary and then add all the dinosaurs in afterwards and it's brilliant and it's produced by Jon Favreau and it's narrated by David Attenborough. They've gone all out on that show. It is amazing. And this film very much is not that. And I think it's once that sequence is over, once the opening sequence has ended, and you are stuck with the freaky lemurs, and you get that kind of typical Disney family dynamic. You've got like a slightly sassy kid, and the mum and dad are like wisecracking at each other. It's just an awkward mix. Like, we even talked in the Bambi episode. Bambi remains one of my favourite things we've watched on this podcast. I think it's outstanding. But even there, there's a bit of a weird dissonance between the majesty of the creation of this forest and trying to authentically through animation create the rhythms of life of the forest of the natural world and then also provide some like cartoon fun with thumper and whatever the stinky skunk was called flower that was it that itself was like a bit of an awkward mix and you feel that so much in this film that it starts from a place of we are gonna shoot live action environments and add in CGI dinosaurs and tell an epic migration story with these dinosaurs but also we're going to be going like here's all the lemurs like cracking off with each other and it was just a just a confused mix it feels like the film is pulled in several directions I mean we are not the kind of podcast that really has a lot of fun making fun of bad movies. Or maybe we are, we've never really had to try yet because we haven't watched any really, really bad movies. But I want to try and put a positive spin on as much of this as we can. I don't relish not liking this movie. And also, if people do like this movie, because I'm sure people will, especially if you loved it when you were a kid, let us know. I'd be really interested to know what you like about it. But I hated most of it. Like, just could not get through it 
And it's because of how big a drop-off there is from that opening in so many different ways. Not just because silent dinosaurs are cooler than dinosaurs speaking in annoying voices with annoying Lima friends, but, like, the majority of this movie is so dull to look at. They are walking through a desert for almost the entire film. We get this incredible opening with this lush live-action environment, this forest, this tropical jungle, and a huge variety of dinosaurs in that opening sequence as well, which by half an hour in is whittled down to like there's maybe four or five different types of dinosaurs that you really get a look at for the majority of this film. And on top of that, it's all just brown. And I don't get it. If this was a conventional CGI movie, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, obviously the forest is going to cost a lot more to build than the desert is, so they've run out of money and, and they've just had to set most of it in the desert. And obviously it makes sense with the story with the meteor shower devastating the forest and all of that, but still. But it's live action. You could have just filmed more stuff in the jungle and then spent most of the movie in something that looks good or in, in a bunch of different kinds of environments, something to, to tickle our eyeballs a bit. Like, you could take a screenshot from anywhere in the last, like, 50 minutes of this movie and I wouldn't know what scene it was from because it's dinosaurs struggling to emote <laughs> in brown <laughs> desert rocky backgrounds. And often at night as well or in caves. Like, I think that's also speaking to the limitations of the time that... Again, they're very careful in Jurassic Park of a lot of the big kickoff stuff with the dinosaurs takes place at night in the rain because it really helps you with those early CG effects. But I think that was one of the big disappointments for me with this, as you say, is one of the best things about a great dinosaur film is the world that you get to create with all these dinosaurs. And yet it is very visually samey there's some really good stuff early on i thought the initial like meteor shower attack was really visually striking don't quite know maybe this is completely right i don't know the exact science of like a mushroom cloud explosion (laughs) when the meteor hits would that happen i don't know if you're a scientist or if your surname is oppenheimer please let me know but that sequence when they're all having to escape There is this huge amount of destruction. All the meteor fragments are flying at the dinosaurs. That is pretty solid. It's quite exciting. But as you say, from then on in, it becomes a trudge through these kind of quite plain landscapes. I felt, obviously, to jump towards the end, when they finally reach the nesting grounds and you see a bit of green for the first time in like an hour, my eyes were like, oh, wow. (laughs) And they really, I think it's a mix of there's not a huge amount of visual variation in this film. And I think you feel that because we are watching this in the lineage of Disney's animated films, which are packed with colour and vibrancy and everything is designed in a way to give you that visual stimulation to present something beautiful and this film is just pursuing something else but you don't get the visual wow that you want from an animated disney film in this yeah i mean if this movie is reminiscent of anything in the catalog it's the two movies we've already invoked bambi and the lion king which both look very different but both really really pop and are both really visually unique and stunning and pleasant to look at right and this movie is obviously visually unique but it just isn't pleasant to look at there's there's no beauty i agree that 
that meteor shower scene is cool. It's better than I remember it being. Like, in my head, it was only the first five minutes of this movie that were any good, but I was wrong. It's actually the first 20 minutes because that meteor shower, like, the high contrast of the reds and oranges of the perhaps scientifically dubious mushroom clouds against just the jet black sky, that's cool. It made me think of Oppenheimer. Like, genuinely, it's like, okay, they're doing something interesting with this explosive disaster as well. It, yeah, it was, it was good. But... After that, it's giving us nothing. And on top of that, not only are the environments quite drab, but then obviously they've gone with this animation style that means the dinosaurs aren't great to look at either because they've gone for realism. And the, obviously the live-action background informs that. Like, if we're doing both of these things together, they both have to look realistic. If these characters look too cartoony on this backdrop, it's going to look weird. But it just means... These aren't characters I like to look at. These characters are pretty ugly. I am off-put. And also, the characters' personalities don't line up with the visual presentation, because the visual presentation of them, for what it was doing at the time, was aiming for a level of realism, as you say. And yet the characterization of them is playing into adventure movie archetypes. They all speak in American accents, and they're all quipping at each other and cracking little jokes and things. I think I would have even believed it more if they had personalities but in a more serious way. I mean, that's just not the tone that they're going for with this, but it feels incongruous with the presentation of, like, let's try and make the dinosaurs look as real as we can make it. It's almost the problem that the Lion King remake runs into, which, I mean, we've spoken about that before, and I'm I'm slightly more up on that film than other people are. But... The big criticism of that is like, how do you emote through these very realistic looking animal characters? And you kind of feel the early version of that problem in Dinosaur, I think. I I don't think Aladar as a character is particularly strong. And if we're comparing this to The Lion King and Bambi, I mean, The Lion King in particular has an incredible story and characters who absolutely love. Bambi maybe doesn't have the strongest literal characters per se, but it has this grand heft of the coming of age of Bambi himself, of going from this fawn to becoming the king of the forest or whatever he was by the end of that film, and all the things he has to go through in that life cycle. There's a real heft to that, and and this is aiming for a similar thing, but not giving you any characters or really any story to work with other than they're trying to go from there to here and there are dinosaurs trying to eat them right and i mean it's great that you mentioned the lion king remake because that is the culmination of this project right that is the most successful photorealistic animated movie by an enormous margin right by which i mean a movie where all the characters are animated and they look photoreal. And Dinosaur, even though you might not say it's aged very well, can still be described aesthetically as photorealistic. You're not going to be convinced that these dinosaurs are real, but that's what they're going for. They are meant to blend in with these live-action backgrounds. And it was the first big American movie to really try and do that. And the only other example of a film trying to do something similar was the Final Fantasy movie, The Spirits Within, from around the same time, I think it was the year after. These were the first two films that have started to push against the walls of CGI that were erected by Toy Story, because the Pixar guys, they knew that 3D animation, computer animation, has a higher potential for recreating realistic imagery 
and in particular realistic characters than 2D animation. But the Pixar guys knew that you had to stop. You had to draw a line because in Toy Story, you can look at Andy and think he's obviously not looking photorealistic and maybe he looks a little bit uncanny valley. But they could have gone a lot further. Like, even at the time, they could have made Andy look a lot more like a real person. And they've deliberately chosen not to because they know that if you push too far, not only do you fall into the uncanny valley where it feels uncomfortable, but also it's just difficult to have these characters emote. It's difficult to believe in these characters on an emotional level because they lose that level of expressivity that animation has always imbued its characters with going back even to Snow White right Pixar over time have pushed the limits like in Toy Story 4 Andy looks a lot more realistic than in Toy Story 1 but that's why in animation studies we describe what Pixar do and what Disney used to do in films like Snow White as hyper real as distinct from photo real right because it's not trying to pass for reality it's trying to almost go beyond reality in terms of its potential for emotional expression and also because in Pixar's case, they know that if you push too far, it doesn't work. And Dinosaur, Final Fantasy, these were the movies that pushed too far. Dinosaur was a much bigger hit than Final Fantasy was, partly, I think, because it's using dinosaurs instead of humans, so it's less unsettling. But it still shows that this wasn't really what people want, and this was something the industry learned from, because even though the potential for photorealistic animation would only go up and up and up for years, it was really until The Lion King when people thought, let's try this again, let's try and make a whole movie like this. I mean, obviously we're talking about the technological side of the film a lot, but I think that's because it feels like that's kind of almost all there is to this film. It feels, watching it now, that they were so preoccupied with creating the dinosaurs, with how they were going to physically realise this film, that it's just surprising in this run, off the back of this incredible Disney renaissance that is just filled with characters that pop and incredible songs it's notable there's no songs in this film you get the lebo m infused soundtrack that gives you definitely a bit of that lion king feeling in the score but there are no sequences even bambi has drip drip drop little late pro showers it has these moments of music that kind of punctuate the storytelling this just doesn't have much going on in terms of the characters i didn't really feel anything in that relationship between Aladar and Nera, the Iguanodon, who he's kind of... Basically, it feels like they shoehorn in this love story between them because you need to get to a place at the end where they have a baby and the cycle begins again. It's Bambi, it's the Lion King. But there's none of the storytelling or character beats along the way to make you really believe in that relationship or invest in it in any way. And I kind of felt that with the other characters too, like... Bruton and Kron, the kind of slightly mean dinosaurs who you know are going to ultimately, you know, either sacrifice themselves or come to believe that Aladar is, you know, all right. It just feels very, very basic. It's so thin on the storytelling level, which I think was... I didn't go into this expecting it to look as good as a dinosaur film would now, but I think I was surprised by the lack of character in these characters I, I didn't really root or gravitate towards any of them so the leads and the antagonists fall a bit flat despite their best efforts including by the way given iguanodons lips because that's not a, th- a thing iguanodons have beaks right yeah. and what they've done here i only realized this on this watch through 
they don't have teeth in their mouths. It looks like they've got teeth, but it's actually it's it's one long it's tooth. One big tooth. It's a beak. Like when influencers after a season of Love Island, they go and get the procedure done where then they have like one big clip-on tooth that is just like bright white. Love looking out for when a said list celeb gets one big tooth. Just like my pal Aladar. <laughs> So they have the beaks. It's like they were thinking, okay, we want to stay accurate to the fossils of these animals, and you can't prove from the fossils that they didn't have lips, that they didn't have, like, fleshy flaps over the top of the beaks. The beaks are just on the inside. So that was weird. <laughs> um, well, how did I start this? Yeah, so they, they were trying their best to give life to these Iguanodon characters, and not least Nira. I feel like Nira is the only character in the movie where they've tried to push the design a bit further to reflect who she's supposed to be, and who she is supposed to be is a woman. So they <laughs> soften her, and they feminize her, and she's a little bit almost like lavender colored. She's a little bit pinker than the other ones. She's got prominent cheekbones. She kind of looks uncannily human out of all of them. If you're looking at Nira, like, full frontal, with just our neck in view and our head, it's like some kind of creepy space alien more than a dinosaur, I thought. And she has that line, she calls Aladar Jerkosaurus, and it was that kind of, yeah. like, anachronism that I was just like, am I supposed to believe these are actual dinosaurs in a prehistoric age, or am I supposed to believe that these dinosaurs say things like Jerkosaurus? I, you can't pull me in both of those directions at once. So the script doesn't pop, those main characters don't pop, so we're left with the sidekicks, what in another Disney movie would be the straightforward conventional sidekicks to like carry this thing. So, okay, we've got like the older dinosaurs at the back, right? Maybe we should talk about them first a okay. little bit. So we'll we've... build up to the lemurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. So we've got Billing, the Brachiosaurus. We've got Ema. She's like Triceratops-esque, but she's not a Triceratops. She's not a Sinoceratops. She's another Ceratops. According to this, she's a Styracosaurus. But also, according to this list, Bruton isn't an Iguanodon. He's an Alterhinus, but he just looks like an Iguanodon, so I don't know where <laughs> they're getting this from. And then you've got Earl. And I don't mind Earl, the Ankylosaurus who acts like a dog. Yeah, like an Ankylosaurus. I mean, they're, they're pretty cool. They're cool dudes. Is he... Like, I don't think... Are we doing Disneyversity Legend? Because it's... Is it Earl by default? I like Earl, but I don't just want to give him, like, a pity Disneyversity legend. I'm gonna say it. I'm crashing in like a meteor, destroying all these dinosaurs and saying there is not a Disneyversity legend in this movie. Not even by default, I'm afraid. Maybe the egg? Like, that's the best <laughs> scene in the movie. The egg is the star of the show. The inanimate egg is the yeah. best. <laughs> <laughs> unsung character from this. Oh god, that's scraping the barrel, isn't it? Gonna give it a toot? No, I don't feel like nah, you are. <laughs> no, nah, I'm I'm not in a tooting mood, Sam. This film hasn't put me in the mood to toot. <laughs> the egg is better than the dinosaur that it hatches into, because what do we think about Baby Aladar? Because if there's not a Disneyversity legend, I think there's a few potential TDLFs in this, truly disgusting little freaks, and Aladar is a baby... Might just be one of them. He freaks me out, man. He's freaky, and he instantly wheeze all over the lemur, which I don't know if, it, if that's a positive point or a negative point. It's just weird. Well, yeah, the granddad lemur, who I'm told is called Yar, he sees baby Aladar, this freaky little thing, and he thinks, I'm going to kill this baby. <laughs> I'm going to, like, drop this baby off the tree and just end it because he's like, oh, d dinosaurs are dangerous. Um, and I'm with him. 
if I saw that, if I encountered baby Aladar, I'm dropping them off a tree. And the, the baby does like a waz in Yar's arms. And that's what convinces him. He's like, oh, I guess he's too cute to kill. No, that would merely strengthen my resolve. You might even drop him by accident or the slipperiness of your hands at that point. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah, he's taking a plunge. So I guess that takes us to where I kind of wanted to be and where I can tell from your reaction earlier and from the text I received when you're watching this movie, you don't want to be, which is Lima Town. You, I don't think we're a fan of the Lemas. I don't think I've been as horrified since Pinocchio by anything in a Disney film like I was these flipping Lemas, which look so deeply horrifying it scratched my brain in a bad way in the same sense that pretty much all of robert altman's popeye did where it was just like texturally unpleasant on my brain and it's not just how the lemurs look Uh, obviously again it's the limitations of the time and they have the fur textures a little bit before monsters inc really kind of pioneered how you do those fur textures but they look freaky they look horrible. They're really upsetting to watch. And the characterization of the lemurs, I'm specifically talking about Zinni? Zini? Oh, yeah. I knew you were talking about Zinni. We need to talk about Zinni. Oh, God. Honestly, drop Zinni off the cliff. Just the absolute nadir. Just shocking. The things that he says, <laughs> he refers to himself at the end as the love monkey. And yeah. If it wasn't the end of the film already, I would have turned it off. I would have just been like, Zinni, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. I've got a few more. He says, I'm the professor of love in classes in session to some women he's trying to pull. He says, when the Brachiosaurus stomps through the ground and discovers water, he says, I always did like big girls. That is, that was, I, oh, Zinni, get in the bin. And he says to a group of female lemurs, and you, you ladies want to play monkey in the middle? Monkey in the middle. Monkey monkey in the middle of the bin, off in the ocean, <laughs> sailing out to sea. Imagine if your species got knocked down to four people and one of them was this cretin. I oh. mean, that is bad luck, man, for the lemurs as a race. Lemurs today are cute as hell. I love a lemur. I'm a big fan of seeing animals... And when you look at a lemur and it's scurrying around, it's adorable, it's kind of cool, it's got a cool vibe going on. The lemurs in this would just... Like, why is this film called Dinosaur? This film should be called Lemurs, Brackets, and Dinosaur. It is so lemur-heavy. I texted you quite early on in the film and just said, are are the lemurs a big part of this? (laughs) Am I going to be stuck with these lemurs? And you were instantly like, yeah, strap in for the lemurs. (laughs) I'm really glad I had that warning because I could just mentally steal myself. They're horrible, terrible characters that look deeply distressing. I cannot stress enough how much I hated these lemurs. They're just, they tank the movie. The, The movie is already struggling. The movie is already swimming trying to keep its head above water, and these lemurs are just dragging it down, man. So Zinni's a truly disgusting little freak, right? I oh, think we can a all million agree on percent. that. Gurgi is like a Disney-versity legend. 
next to Zinni. He's <laughs> elevated from TDLF straight into legend status next to Zinni. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I want to root for Plyo, or Plio, I think she's called, because that's Alfred Woodard, and I want to root for Yar, because that's Ozzy Davis from Do The Right Thing, man. He's a legend. Oh, both of those. And uh, yeah, Alfred Woodard as well, total legend. Like, strong voice performances from those two. It's just... Really, all my Lima hatred comes down to Zinni, basically. And, and the fact that, they, I mean, they all look horrifying, obviously. Before we move on from voices quickly, did you recognise who voiced Kron? No. That was Samuel E. Wright, the voice of Sebastian. No way! Oh, wow. Okay, you've got a really different thing going on there. Real transformation between those two roles, so props to him. I think I saw somewhere when I was trying to work out what the hell was going on in this film, uh, Hayden Panettiere was the voice of a young lemur? Yeah, she was Suri, the little lemur. Okay, we we like Hayden Panetti, yeah. Big fan of Heroes back in the day, or the first season anyway. Big fan of Scream 4, thumbs up for Hayden Panetti, yeah. And Alfre Woodard, and Samuel E. Wright, but who voiced Zinni, Sam? Who does that crime belong to? Max Casella, who I think was in The Sopranos. Oh, really? I, I don't oh know who was a big part of The Sopranos, I've never seen The Sopranos. Max Casella. Well, any, again, any big Max Casella fans, please tweet and explain why. <laughs> it's the script. He didn't come up. I don't no. think he came up with Monkey in the Middle. He is moderately innocent, but in a Sopranos sense, Zinni is getting whacked. <laughs> right. He's being driven much... out and he's being told that it's fine. He's just going for a nice drive. He's actually going to the woods and there is no hope for him. Uh, and unlike Joe Pesci and Goodfellas, he is not funny like a clown funny. How much more of the movie Dinosaur is there to discuss, do you think? I'm going to say we're near the end of the discussion on the film. Stop, stop, it's already dead. I do want to say something that I really liked about this film, which was how it used the Carnotaurs as the villains. I just think Carnotaurs are kind of generally a bit underrepresented in dinosaur media. At the time, I'm sure it would have been a huge temptation just to go, we need a T-Rex, we've got to have T-Rexes in this movie. And Carnotaurs, I mean, they're pretty similar, but they've got little horns, they're red, which is kind of cool, and they pop up at various points and you go, oh, something's about to happen now, <laughs> and you're relieved by that. So yeah, I, I liked the fact that they didn't go always for the obvious dinosaurs, and I liked the inclusion of the Carnotaurs here. But it's a shame because that final fight, as you head into the final reel of the film... It's just so visually dull. You have a couple of Carnotaurs like attacking the entire herd of iguanodons, and they're just stuck in this like grey, stony canyon. There is not a lot visually going on. You get a really Disney beat of the final Carnotaur is defeated because it like slips and falls off the crumbling edge of the cliff. That is such a Disney move. Even in a dinosaur film, they can't straight up murder the antagonistic dinosaurs. But it was just such a disappointing finale. I wanted more from it, visually, story-wise, on all those levels. The Carnotaurs deserved better, Sam. Yeah, it is like one of those recent Godzilla movies where they just make everything a little bit dark to obscure the fact that the effects aren't that good. Which, as you point out, like there's elements of that in Jurassic Park, but obviously that's shot and plotted so dynamically that it's still incredibly exciting. And this is just like what's kind of going on here in this environment that just looks like the 
quarry where they used to shoot every Doctor Who episode. You know, it's it's <laughs> kind of uninspiring, I think is the word. And you know why the Conators are the best characters? Because they don't speak. That is true. I kind of hadn't noticed that. I was too busy just enjoying the parts of the film that they were in. Yeah, they don't speak. That's an interesting choice. That's why it's effective. And it's similar to The Land Before Time. The T-Rex in that doesn't speak. And it's also similar to... I think there's just this theme in, in a lot of animated movies where like herbivores speak carnivores are like brutal and savage and don't and watership down which i think has a lot in common with this film as well that has this like savage dog that doesn't speak and it's kind of a very similar ending where um wound wart the kind of closest equivalent to cron in that movie is taken out not by the other rabbits but by the vicious dog and that's kind of the role that the conator plays here in the final conflict there is a little bit of relief then when you get to the nesting grounds, when all the dinosaurs make it to the nesting grounds thanks to Aladar's intervention. And yeah, just seeing all these dinosaurs back in a lush green environment, you're like, why wasn't the rest of the film this? This is the movie that I wanted to see. Aladar and Nera have their own little baby. The circle of life begins again. It was just strange to see that story play out and not feel anything in the way that I massively felt things watching Bambi and The Lion King. It was a weirdly empty ending for me. Yeah, I think, um, is it the fault of the ending itself or is it the fault of what builds up to it that we don't really feel like these characters mean anything to each other? Nira and Aladar only have really one scene together that doesn't involve her calling him a Jerkosaurus. Um, <laughs> it's not really earned. And I think you could take both of the bookends of this movie and put something better in between, spend more time with the characters. Could have had an extra 10 minutes if it was interesting. As it stands, I think it could have been shorter. But if you were going to use that time well, productively to develop the characters and make us care about them. It's quite a short film. You could have put another 10 on there. It's only 75 minutes and it feels so much longer. It, the pacing of this film is not <laughs> it's not great either. Yeah, it could have done with more of that characterization. Or better yet, Sam, I liked your suggestion way back when we started this conversation that it should have just been a short. They should have just stuck with that opening sequence, which is, by the standard of everything else, really great. Generally, it's fine, it's pretty good, it's hypey for eight-year-old Sam <laughs> watching it on a VHS. If only we could say that for the rest of the film. Well then, now that we've reached our own nesting grounds, that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we excavate, see what I did there? All the dark, weird stuff that didn't make the film. Now, this is an original story, but were there detours along the way that didn't make the cut? Any stray dinosaurs who were supposed to be in this that weren't in the finished film? Yeah, I mean, apart from the whole it's going to be silent and they all just fight and kill each other and poop and copulate. <laughs> <laughs> Release the copulate cuts. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few more specific things that were taken out. So the original draft starred a Styracosaurus, so like what Ema is, a bit like a Triceratops, named Woot. Which is a great name. That's pretty cool. Release the Woot cut. <laughs> Release any other cut. Release the no <laughs> Lima cut. Damn it. Well, you wouldn't have liked this because this featured Woot alongside a Lima. No. Who was suggested to be played by either an actor in a suit 
or an actual lemur. And they were training lemurs, Ben. They were training lemurs for this movie at one point. I mean, that would have been preferable to what we got. Also, was somebody going to wear a Woot suit? Or was that always going to be CGI? Well, this was back when Woot was stop motion. I can't hold it in my head how any of this is going to work. Just infiltrate it, we trust, at this point. (laughs) So this version would have ended with the asteroid hitting and the death of all the dinosaurs. Oh, that's bold. Yeah, so Verhoeven is quoted saying there was a gigantic battle at the end as a comet moves closer and closer to Earth and the fights between the Styracosaurus and the T-Rex. And even though the good guy wins, there's nothing to win anymore because the comet hits Earth and all the dinosaurs die. The lemurs survive because they are small enough to hibernate. The end of the film was the beginning of the human race. And that's just a bizarre string of sentences from Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> I mean, characteristic for him. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's kind of bonkers. I, I, I kind of respect the madness of it. There's still some work to be done on that. And it seems quite dark for Disney, but also the Disney-produced Jim Henson sitcom Dinosaurs also ends with the extinction of the dinosaurs. Yeah. That's a real so a theme. I mean, history gives you an end point to these stories. But instead, it's like we start with the meteor shower, which obviously isn't the ultimate meteor shower. Don't worry, all these characters are still going to get killed later on. But they start with that disaster and have the movie in its aftermath. And I think there's a better movie where you find that balance. And then the second draft of the movie had like a biblical theme. So Aladar's character was named Noah and Kron's character was named Cain. And Noah would have prophetic visions of the future that would kind of fuel the direction of their travel. And that is also very similar to Watership Down. And it's very similar to The Black Cauldron. And we find out that Noah and his psychic visions ends up being related to Henwen, the psychic pig, the true hero of that film. Okay, well... Not a vast amount of discarded material, but let's talk about the reception of this film. What did critics say at the time about Dinosaur? Because I can imagine there was an extent that it might have been impressive. Were critics impressed? I mean, the general vibe is, we'll like the opening, we'll like the idea, but the execution is lacking. So the LA Times said, it's a technical amazement that points computer-generated animation towards the brightest of futures, but it's also cartoonish in the worst way, the prisoner of pedestrian plot points and childish too-cute dialogue. So a bit of that like tonal problem that you were identifying before. And Roger Ebert says, an enormous effort had been spent on making these dinosaurs seem real, and then an even greater effort was spent on undermining the illusion. He's good, that Roger Ebert, isn't he? Yeah. He's gone away with words. These are some well-written reviews. I, I really am a big fan of alliteration in reviews. My reviews are full of alliteration, so they're kind of on track with what we thought about the film. And Phil Tippett, even better with words, said, they totally flumped it up, but he didn't say flumped. <laughs> oh, Phil, I'd love to get Phil Tippett on this podcast. Can you imagine... That'd be incredible. Okay, so, yeah, critics pretty mixed on it overall. You kind of indicated that this maybe made a decent amount of money, and yet also it was very costly to make. So did it just about swim, or was it sinking? Well, it made $350 million, okay? So that's quite a bit. That made it the fifth highest grossing film of the year, behind What Women Want, Castaway, Gladiator, and in at number one, a Sam and Ben favourite, Mission Impossible 2. Yes! <laughs> we watched Mission Impossible 2 just a couple of weeks ago uh, with a big thing of chicken wings. What a day. <laughs> so 
It made less than those movies. It made less than Tarzan, which made 448 million. It was kind of the most recent real point of comparison. But it made more money than Pocahontas, Hunchback, Hercules, Mulan. And it made more money than any Disney film would until Tangled. It beat Lilo and Stitch. It beat Princess and the Frog. And these movies are much more favourably looked back upon. These movies have had much more of a lasting legacy. And Dinosaur is thought of as a flop, even though it actually was pretty successful. And part of the reason behind that is it was expensive to make. The actual official budget was only $127 million, so it made over double that. But when you factor in marketing and when you factor in the cost of building a new state-of-the-art computer animation studio, then it starts to look pretty hefty. And in the wake of Dinosaur... Secret Lab would be closed down. They did a few more effects jobs on other people's live-action movies. I think the last film with a Secret Lab effect on it was Kangaroo Jack. You remember Kangaroo Jack? I remember it was the one with the kangaroo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He wears a hoodie, I think. He does, he does. He he steals some money, I want to say. Okay. Did he steal the hoodie as well, or did he buy that with the money that he stole? I think I suspect he stole the hoodie. Maybe the money was in the hoodie. It's kind of like Mm. No Critting for Old Men with a kangaroo. (laughs) That's a movie I want to see. No kangas for old men. So that was their last movie they actually put out that they worked on. It was actually a Warner Brothers film. But they were put to work developing another fully CG animated movie that was going to be called Wild Life. No relation to the wild whatsoever. (laughs) This one was the story of an elephant who tries to become a club singer in New York City. And isn't that just a classic unmade Disney plot? (laughs) X Animal wants to do Y thing, possibly based on Z classic novel. (laughs) So that film failed to get off the ground. Apparently the script had some incredibly adult jokes in that I am not going to repeat. Uh, A pun on the word manhole is involved. And Roy Disney was shocked and appalled, killed the movie. That combined with the disappointment of Dinosaur killed the secret lab. Hundreds of artists let go. Disaster. Imagine writing a joke so bad that an entire studio shuts down. That's bonkers. (laughs) Well, that's what happened, apparently. So... Did okay, did pretty well at the box office, but not very well remembered. And the real legacy of this movie is shut down that studio meant it would be a long time before Disney themselves would try and make a CG animated movie again. Yeah, so we're heading back into a run of 2D movies from here. I'm looking forward to being back in familiar territory, Sam. This was this was a wild swing and it was a miss. Which I think tees up our opinions on the film. You said terrible before. So what star rating are you going here? Are you, are you doing a one? I don't think it's a one, because I do like the beginning, and I like the meteor shower, so it has redeeming features. The other movie, the really bad movie, there is nothing good about it at all. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'll change my mind, I don't believe it has any redeeming features, that's a one star. This, I think, could even be a two, but it is comfortably the worst movie we've watched, I think. I'm in exactly the same camp as you, like... Opening sequence, pretty decent. Can't bring myself to truly hate a dinosaur movie, but this is two stars. This is the worst thing we've watched so far. I would say if you didn't watch it before listening to this podcast, you're probably not going to now. And if you did, I can only apologise. It's not great. First 10 minutes, first 20 minutes even, check it out. Don't stick through. As soon as they're in the desert, 
switch it off, that's it, you're done. But if you liked it, let me know why. I'd say turn it off when the lemurs turn up. That's it, I'm out, I'm done. I'm never watching this again, Sam. <laughs> this was all one and done. Okay, well, now it is time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. Can we talk about the parks now, Sam? Yes. So this is going to be interesting, because you have recently been, and this is just a whole interesting, weird part of the Disney theme park world, because... Really, the biggest by a distance element of Dinosaurs Last and Legacy is the land, the area of Disney's Animal Kingdom in Orlando known as Dinoland USA. And I'm not even 100% certain how much of this land is still standing, but you were there recently. So why don't you start us off by describing Dinoland USA and what you experienced there? Okay, so this was what, maybe 10 months ago now? It was a little while ago, and at the point that I was at Walt Disney World in Animal Kingdom, had a little wander through Dinoland USA, it was on its way out. It was nearing extinction, the meteor was coming, there was no buzz around this area of the park. We went all around Animal Kingdom, we did all the safari stuff, and we did Obviously, the Avatar stuff is incredible. We watched the A Bug's Life show. It's tough to be a bug. <laughs> that was a great time. But you go to Dinoland USA, and it was like, it was a ghost town. There was barely anybody there. The general theme seemed to be modern-day America, but run by dinosaurs. Almost like the good dinosaur premise, but kind of contemporary america it was a weird mix i remember there being like almost like a petrol station but there was dinosaur themes and i was like what is going on we're just going on the dinosaur ride and then we're getting the hell out of here and going to the pandora ride again so i am able to explain all of that please but do. why don't we start by talking about the ride so you went on the dinosaur yeah, ride. yeah i've been on the ride i have experienced the ride which i think has a reputation as being genuinely one of the scariest disney rides because it is very very dark in there it's one of those things where you get into a truck and you get driven around and there's dinosaurs popping out everywhere there is wild lore to this ride which i'm sure sam will explain more from what i remember a scientist is sending you back in time for some reason you have to get something from the past so you get into this truck and they're like we're going to send you back into the past you're going to go on this adventure, you've got to get the thing, and then we'll blast you back into the present. It's going to be extremely dangerous. Hopefully you won't get eaten along the way. And this ride is so dark. It's so deeply, deeply visually dark. There is no light. <laughs> Very little light in this ride. So that's kind of intense. The other thing about it is it will absolutely rattle your soul out of your body. It will shake your spine out of alignment. It was so violent the stops and the starts and the jerks and going this way and that way and then the cars bumping like this and there's dinosaurs popping out and the cars moving and then you go in it was i've rarely been so thrown around by a ride in my life it was so intense add to this that because it was so violent movement wise this is going to come up when we go to Disneyland, Sam. On rides and roller coasters, because my glasses are so integral to my life, I need these glasses so much. 
what I wear on rides are my prescription sunglasses with these extra grips that like hold them onto my head. So I don't ha- I can just enjoy the ride and just not have to worry about my extremely important to me glasses flying off the ride and then I'm stuck for the rest of my holiday, the rest of my trip without any glasses. That is a significant thing for me. So I was also, I think, on the dinosaur, the extremely dark dinosaur ride with my sunglasses on, (laughs) seeing very little, seeing Carnotaur heads popping out. I remember Carnotaurs being a big part of it and being so violently shaken around. (laughs) I think Lizzie and I both felt quite sick when we came off it. I mean, all of that said, it was good. (laughs) I had a good time, but it was way more intense than a 20-year-old Disney ride should be. Those are my memories. So despite that disorienting experience, you still seem to have managed to retain the bulk of the plot of this ride, which is relevant to the plot of the broader Dinoland USA area. So you are sent back in time by the scientists of the Dino Institute, right, to just before the asteroid wipes out the dinosaurs in order to save a dinosaur who happens to be Aladar and bring him back to the present and you get attacked by the Carnotaurs from the movie. Now, they wouldn't have thought this through because this came out two years before the movie and was only slightly tweaked to make it more in line with the film afterwards. But that means that you're either going back to the time of the ultimate like meteor that is going to destroy all the dinosaurs and save an Aladar, which means that this is set after the movie Dinosaur and Aladar survives up until the actual meteor strike and you take him and save him but all of his friends and family and probably hopefully the lemurs die okay (laughs) that's one possibility yeah or you're traveling back to the meteor shower that destroyed his home at the start of the movie and averting the events of the film dinosaur Ooh, i can confirm no lemurs on this ride as far as i remember it's not like we tried to get aladar and all we've got is a big bag of lemurs oh my god Okay, I don't know. That doesn't really give me a clue either way. It might just be that they thought better of including the lemurs or just thought when they were making this ride, there's no way lemurs are going to be a big part of this movie. We don't have to think of that. Why would we? The film's called Dinosaur. The ride's called Dinosaur. No mention of lemurs anywhere. So that is the ride dinosaur, originally known as Countdown to Extinction. But much more interesting than that to me is the land in which it resides. Dinoland USA, often regarded as one of the worst lands in any Disney theme park, which is, as you've kind of described, basically modern America, but dinosaur themed. And there is a gas station and there is a lot of quite shonky seaside fair style rides including a now defunct like kiddie roller coaster called Primeval Whirl. So I assume for budgetary reasons, they didn't go for we're putting a dinosaur land in Animal Kingdom, let's make it Jurassic Park. Let's make it a, a, a tropical jungle filled with dinosaurs, which the kind of already is at Universal Studios as well. It's a very cheap modern-day carnival featuring dinosaur-themed games and rides. And this is explained by some wonderful in-universal lore. Now, Ben, my question to you was going to be, (laughs) did you get any of this from being in the park? But you've already answered that because you are way off, friend, with your assumption that this is modern-day America run by dinosaurs. That is absolutely not the case. So what happened in the backstory of Dinoland USA is this. In 1947, dinosaur fossils were discovered beneath a gas station in the fictional Florida county 
Diggs, right? Diggs County. It was already called that. Okay. But someone dug and they found dinosaur fossils. So tourists descend on the town. Paleontologists descend on the town, which leads to the founding of the Dino Institute, which would eventually master time travel down the road. (laughs) But our main characters really are the owners of the gas station, an elderly couple called Chester and Hester. And they build the Dino Land USA Carnival as a cheesy tourist trap because they own the land. So anyone who's coming to see the fossils to see the Dino Institute can also go on our crappy rides. And this is a clever bit of Imagineering that turns what is basically a standard issue fairground into a cool high concept parallel universe. But only if you know about the story because, yeah, I went there when I was a kid and I just thought, what the hell is this? (laughs) This is rubbish. Yeah. We have one of these in Sunderland, and I avoid it. It's really not good, and we did Disney after doing Universal, and the Jurassic stuff at Universal is off the chain. It is amazing. The Velocicoaster is the best roller coaster I've ever been on. The old Jurassic Park-themed stuff is brilliant. It's amazing. Dino USA, we were in, we were out, we went straight <laughs> straight through the other side. Didn't get any of a sense of Chester and Hester's story. But it's, it sounds like we missed out. We should have made the most of it, because I think it is going away. I think they are getting rid of it. Yeah, I don't know for a fact. If they are, then it probably is known. But definitely Primeval World is gone, and I imagine the rest of it isn't long for this world either. So there's a couple of other bits and bobs that we should mop up. There was a dinosaur video game, uh, which was like a top-down sort of action RPG kind of thing. Like you leveled up your characters, your characters being Aladar, Zinni, and a new character, a pterodactyl called Flyer, which is a poor name. (laughs) Terrible name. I can't believe there's a playable Zinni. Oh my god. Yeah, so they've all got different moves and stuff. Like Zinni can run into holes and, and whatever hope we get stuck but it's all top down and you send your guys around fighting other dinosaurs okay fine whatever my favorite thing that i found and one of my favorite things that i've ever found for this podcast is a musical album a record of songs inspired by disney's dinosaur and this is an album called Dinosaur Song Factory. And this is <laughs> what a name. I'm already in. Uh, you got me already. I just got off my shift down at the Dinosaur Song Factory. Honey, how was your day at the Dinosaur Song Factory? Oh man, it was rough, let me tell you. Slaving away <laughs> on those dinosaur songs. <laughs> so, this was like a really big time for music from and inspired by albums. Usually they would have like big artists, big singles... Like, this was a year before Chad Kroger's Hero from Spider-Man, Evanescence Bring Me to Life from Daredevil. It's a big time for this kind of thing. Land of a Million Drums from the Scooby-Doo soundtrack. (laughs) By Outkast featuring Killer Mike, of course. But this album features no artist you have ever heard of. All of the songs were written by a guy called Chris Martin who, I have to assume for the sake of my sanity, is not that Chris Martin. (laughs) Not the Coldplay guy. No, not in 2000. So these songs truly sound like they were made at the Dinosaur Song Factory. (laughs) These songs do not sound like real songs. They sound like Made, they are made up songs, and I know that's a non sequitur, like all songs are made up, but these songs are not real. The recording artists are not real. They're made by 
so there's a guy on this album called James quote JT Taylor. JT I guess stands for for James Taylor. But then there's also another guy called J.R. Taylor. Like two different artists. What? And then later on it's got J.R. Tavlor. <laughs> These are all the same guy they wearing different wigs, the... aren't they? <laughs> all the same guy. It's also got Roland and Chorus. Uh, Quicksand, Virgil Seals, Helen Darling, and Mike Cross are the artists who contribute to this 26-minute eight-song album called Dinosaur Song Factory. And this is on all of your streaming services. Is it? It's on Spotify, it's on Apple Music, it's on YouTube. Listen to it. It's 28 minutes, and most of it is hilarious. Some of it is unlistenable, some of it is just normal, but there are songs... I've listened to this like three times and I'm screaming every time. There is a song on this album, the first track is Dino Beat, which is like a quite heavy punk song where they're just naming dinosaurs. They're just going like, Brachiosaurus, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Carnotaurus... It's it's crazy. And then the next song, track two, is like, it's sort of a yacht rock song. It sounds like Michael McDonald, but heavily auto-tuned. Like, it sounds like Michael McDonald, produced by Daft Punk, singing over the Seinfeld bass. No. And it's called Big Rock. And it's this song about the big rock yeah. that landed on the dinosaurs. Oh. And it's like... And all we had to blame was a real big rock. But it was it's all auto-tuned. And then after every verse, you just get a little... Like a little bit of Seinfeld bass in between. So that is, oh, that is just off its head. And then there's a song called The Perfect Size, which is about the character Suri, played by Hayden Panettiere. And the, the other thing about this album is, it just drops in the names of the characters from the movie Dinosaur, right. as if they are, like, iconic. <laughs> as if, like, uh, oh, everyone knows who Suri is. I can just drop her into, like, one line of this song and everyone understands what it's about. That's called The Perfect Size by Helen Darlin. And Helen Darlin, her vocals and the, the drum track... And the weird guitar licks that are peppered throughout this thing sound like none of these people were listening to the track as they were recording <laughs> it. Like, it's all completely out of time. Oh, and then my other favourite, and the one that has been <laughs> really stuck in my head, is called Break an Egg, right? By J.R. Tavlor. Yes. <laughs> as he's credited okay. here. And this song, I counted, mentions the word egg, 33 times <laughs> over the course of its two minutes 50 wow. and it's like every little egg du, 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 every little egg every little egg so that's kind of the theme of the verse and then you think he said egg enough and then the chorus is like every little egg a little egg every little egg is a really little egg <laughs> That sounds outstanding. Oh my god. It's so catchy. It says egg so many times. Few things have been stuck in my head through this podcast, like the French pop song based loosely around Oliver and Company. Oliver, oh, Oliver. Every little leg, every little leg. That is the new (laughs) 
Oliver oh Oliver. Oh my god. And I can't actually sing you the lyrics because no one's transcribed them. I can't find the lyrics. You know how weird that is in the age of the internet? Like in 2023, I can't find a single person who cared enough about Dinosaur Song Factory to transcribe any of the lyrics. Please, somebody listening to this, be that person. I want it on Genius. I want it everywhere. Can you get it on CD? Is it available on vinyl? Did they press it on vinyl? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> It's 2000, so I'm assuming definitely CD, definitely not vinyl would be my guess. Let me have a look. Dinosaur... I'm on Amazon.co.uk. Dinosaur Song Factory. So you can buy the MP3 and get an audio CD for £7.74. I'm not seeing vinyl. Okay, well... If you're out there, it's so good. If you're listening to this, if you have a copy of Dinosaur Song Factory, either on CD or especially on vinyl, that is the most precious relic. That is the new holy grail of Disneyversity has just arrived. Going out there to all you little eggs. (laughs) (laughs) And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for our next seminar as we chart the tumultuous creation of a film without which Disneyversity might not actually exist. It's another 2000 movie, what a year for the studio, Sam. The Emperor's New Groove. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll save you a spot at the nesting grounds, and ensure it's an entirely Lima-free zone. That is a Disneyversity guarantee. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye, I'm off to listen to my new groove, Big Rock by Mike Cross. (laughs) And it's goodbye from me. I am coming around to your house tomorrow night. We're going to listen to that album. I cannot wait. See you there. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Every little egg is going to change someday in every small and every medium and giant way. Every little egg, every little egg will shake and shake again. Every little egg, every little egg is going to break and then snap. Every little egg will get its chance to finally do, to do its dance. Every little egg will get to do.